You're listening to a sermon podcast from Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more info, visit sovgracechurch.ca. I want you to think, what events in, in recent history have captured the world's attention? We've seen um, a daring cave rescue in, in Thailand. We've seen an American joining the British royal family. We've seen a rover landing on Mars. Suspense, uh, intrigue, and awe kept us enthralled as we watched. But very few of us would actually be affected by the outcome of these events. And as we come to another passage in 1 Thessalonians, Paul speaks of a different worldwide event. It will touch every single individual that has ever walked the face of this earth. It will, be, it will affect them regardless of, of race, of political affiliation, um, of religion or socioeconomic status. No one will be exempt from the effects of this once-in-a-lifetime event. When Jesus returns, a new era in world history will begin. And depending on where you stand before God, the consequences of being on the right side of history could not be more different. So my aim this morning is to prepare us well for that day. Clarity about how the future will unfold drastically affects how we live well now in the present. So with that in mind, let's read our passage together. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The words should be projected um, behind me. I'll read all the way to chapter 5, verse 11. Hear the word of the Lord. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words in chapter 5. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. 
We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. This is the word of the Lord. What we'll see is that Paul speaks about what will happen to three groups of people when Jesus returns. And they are mutually exclusive and comprehensive categories. There's no overlap, and it describes every single person on this earth. We'll see he talks about those who are dead in Christ, those who are dead in sin, and those who are alive in Christ. So we'll look at the first group, those who are dead in Christ. What happens to them? What we have seen so far in in 1 Thessalonians is that Paul is equipping this young church to live worthy lives in light of Christ's return, To to be separate from the world in their conduct, to be holy. They are to be different in how they suffer affliction, different in who they live to please. Last Sunday, we saw how Christians must, must be holy in their sexual conduct and in their love for one another. And this morning, we will see the nature and consequences of Christ's return for all of humanity. So look with me at verse 13. Paul says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. So remember, Paul is writing this letter in response to the report he received from Timothy, his, his co-worker in the gospel. And much of this report was, was encouraging. These young Christians were, were growing in faith and in hope and in love. But there was also sad news. You know, Brother Paul, Pastor Paul, death has touched our congregation. We've lost our children our parents, our spouses. We are in so much pain and are they lost to us forever? So Paul wants to comfort them. He he says all this so that they may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Paul is introducing yet another countercultural element for the Thessalonian church. Listen to what Gene Green says about the culture in this time. He says, living hope as a fundamental religious attitude was unknown in Greek culture. In the final analysis, men had to stand without hope before the hostile forces of guilt and death. Those without God have no hope in life and in death. But Paul is saying Christians can grieve with hope. Tears can be mingled with joy. He tells them why in verse 14. Ever the pastor, he roots their actions and their outlook in 
truth. So look with me at verse 14. He says, he declares, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Notice how briefly Paul encapsulates the gospel message. He doesn't need to elaborate on, on what it is. He has no doubt already taught them the intricacies of Christ crucified and Christ risen. And what gives them hope in their grieving is the guaranteed effect of this truth. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. A Christian's hope, dead or alive, is their union with Christ, beautifully pictured at a Christian's baptism, united with Christ in his death and raised with him in newness of spiritual life. The Thessalonians, they likely knew this. But Paul adds to their knowledge an additional outcome of their union with Christ. Christ's resurrection guarantees the final resurrection of even deceased believers. Now, Paul elaborates on what will happen to dead Christians when Jesus returns in our next three verses. So look with me at verse 15. For this we declare to you by word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. You know, the Thessalonian Christians, they were probably thinking, it, it makes sense um, for us who are alive that we will be able to see and hear and enjoy and experience the glory of Jesus' return. But will our deceased loved ones, will they miss out on this grand affair? The word Paul uses here for, for coming of the Lord is the word parousia. It describes an imperial visit to a city. It would be a magnificent event. Think of, of pomp and, and circumstance. Great celebrations and banquets. New buildings would be constructed. New coins would be minted to commemorate the occasion. The, the inhabitants of the city, they would, they would travel out to meet the emperor and then escort him back into the city. And you, if, you, if you've read your Bible, you already see the parallels that Paul is trying to draw. In verse 16, Paul tells them that the dead believers will not be excluded from this, but they will enjoy a place of honor in the celebration. So look with me at verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Pastor John Piper, he calls this the, the loudest, vo loudest verse in the Bible. Command from Jesus himself, the voice of an archangel, and the sound of the trumpet of God. It will be the most deafening but sweetest announcement for the people of God. The Spirit gave life to those who were dead in their sin. And Jesus will say to the dead, rise. And they will respond like Lazarus to his call. Paul is saying the dead, they, they won't miss out on this. They are part of this grand procession as we see in verse 17. 
He says, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. The dead in Christ will join those alive in Christ for the royal welcoming party. Clouds throughout scripture, they have signified the presence of God with his people. In the book of Daniel, Daniel, the prophet Daniel had a vision of Jesus, and this is what he said. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And the apostle John, he tells us in Revelation 1, talking about Jesus, behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. The dead in Christ will most certainly see and enjoy and experience the eternal presence of Jesus with his people. They will be caught up in the air to meet Jesus with their living brothers and sisters. They will escort the King of kings and the Lord of lords down to his victorious descent on earth. So Paul concludes here. He says, in in light of this glorious, guaranteed event, encourage one another with these words. Paul's aim is not to provide a a comprehensive description of all that will happen when Jesus Jesus returns. His aim is to comfort the grieving church. A mother grieving the death of her teenage son will rarely be comforted by the finer points of eschatology, the doctrine of the last times. Paul, the wise pastor, equips his beloved church with sufficient and appropriate truth so that they can grieve with hope together. He says, bear your griefs and burdens together. Death is painful and I mourn with you. But as you mourn together, take heart. Encourage one another with the gospel. Death does not separate anyone from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Your loved ones will see God. They will one day join you in beholding and savoring and worshiping our God forever. Grieve with hope. This is what will happen to those who are dead in Christ at Christ's return. And now we turn to a second group of people, those who are dead in their sin. In the first 11 verses of chapter 5, Paul's aim is to answer a concern, an additional concern of the Thessalonians. What happens to we who are alive at the coming of Jesus? To do this, he uses the the fate of unbelievers as a a foil, a contrast to what they themselves will experience. So look with me at chapter 5, verse 1. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, we have no need to write to you. Some people may have been obsessed with discovering or, or calculating when time would end, when history would come to a close. But Paul had already cautioned them about this futile endeavor. It says in verse 2, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. 
As he's done so, so many times, Paul again calls to memory what he had taught them. They already knew that it would be impossible, impossible to predict when Jesus would return. Now notice, notice the shift in language as Paul describes the end times. In chapter 4, he used the phrase, coming of, of the Lord, parousia, the, the joy-filled imperial visit. Here, he shifts the emphasis by drawing on a well-used Old Testament phrase. The day of the Lord is not just a day of salvation for the saint, but it is one of judgment for the sinner. Listen to some of the passages from the prophets describing the day of the Lord. Zephaniah says, The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom. Isaiah says, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near, as destruction from the Almighty it will come. Paul says this destruction comes when people are least aware. Look at verse 3. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. One day when I was um, 10, our, our teacher, Mr. Smith, he took a call on his cell phone, which was cutting-edge technology at that time. He took a call in the middle of our science class. And he was, he was gone for about 15 minutes. Um, and you know, we were sitting there at our desks, and we were you know, wondering what, what was going on. And when he came back, he told us that his, his daughter in the States had called him. And she told him that a plane had just crashed into the World Trade Center. And my family, we, we watched the news on TV later that night. And I heard several words for the first time. Hijacking. Terrorism. And for me, and for many around the world who were alive during this time, the illusion of peace and security was broken. What Paul is saying in these verses is that coming judgment for the believer is not only unexpected, but it is inevitable. Now, why, why don't they see it coming? Look at verse 4. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. You can't see a thief coming in the dark. Those who are in the light, they can see what is coming at them. Look at verse 5. He says, For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. Darkness and night here, they represent the, the moral state of sinfulness and ignorance of spiritual matters. The Apostle John, he uses this metaphor as well in his, in his first epistle. He says in verse 6, If we say we have fellowship with him, that is with God, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. 
Whoever walks in darkness does not have fellowship with God, is not in a right standing before God. But when one becomes enlightened regarding their spiritual state, when an unbeliever turns to Christ in faith, they are no longer in darkness. When that happens, Paul tells us in Colossians 1 verse 14, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. What we see is that those in the domain of darkness, they act accordingly. Look at verse 6. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Unbelievers, they are slumbering in their moral indifference and their spiritual apathy. They do so, as we see in verse 7, because they are of the night. They do what they are. For those who sleep, they sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. They, they wander around in a drunken stupor. They rest easy, not knowing that destruction can strike at any moment. They are not ready. Some of you know that I, I teach uh, karate. Um, and one of my favorite things to do is to teach, is to teach the kids uh, sparring or mock fighting. Um, it's, it's cute because you see them all decked out in their gear, their little helmets, and their helmets are, you know, squishing their cheeks. But what I like the most is that sparring teaches them to be focused and aware. You know, we teach them, you know, keep your hands up and always be looking straight at your opponent. And, and of course, you know, they're looking everywhere and their hands are down. So, so what I like to do every now and then is as I'm facing them, I just give them a light slap on the side of the head. And it's a, it's a gentle warning. You know, you need to be ready for what is coming. Have your hands up next time. And if God brought you here today and you are not a Christian, this is the warning for you. What will certainly face you when Jesus returns is, is, not a, is not a padded kick to the face or a punch to the stomach with a soft glove. It will be the full, unrestrained pouring out of God's wrath against sin. It will be eternal, binding judgment from Jesus pronounced upon sinners like you. The time of warning will be over. And this eternal punishment won't just be for those who have committed the, the worst of sins in the eyes of the world. It won't just be for those who commit tax evasion or, or intolerance or infanticide, the killing of children. Hell is reserved for anyone who has ever disobeyed God. Anyone who has sought to live their lives apart from God's good design anyone who places their peace and security in their own good deeds or their possessions. Hell is for anyone who has counted any object or any ideal or any one as more precious than God himself. Destruction that you cannot escape from. This is what will happen to you when Jesus 
returns. But this does not have to be the end of the story. We turn to our final group that Paul addresses. What will happen to those who have been made alive in Christ? So look with me at verse 8. He says, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Paul's attack, his exhortation to be watchful, to be alert, is grounded upon God's prior work in their lives. He's saying, we, we have no need to fear this coming destruction. God has already brought us out of the kingdom of darkness. We belong to him. So now we must act like it. And how do Christians be alert and ready? By putting on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. There it is again, the, the, the triad of Christian virtues. Faith in God, love for God's people and for him, hope in the coming of Jesus. Paul has already praised them for this in the letter, and now he exhorts them to excel in them all the more. These impenetrable, defensive pieces of gospel armor would protect them from any fears they had about the future. The certainty of their hope lies in what God has done in Christ. Look with me at verse 9 and 10. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation. The unshakable hope of the Christian is God's gracious election unto salvation. But not that anyone could obtain salvation on their own. None, none of us have enough purchasing power for that. Salvation, as we see, is through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. Jesus, he came from the place of ultimate peace and security in heaven. He was born as a human child. He never had a day of moral indifference but he lived a sinless and a holy life. And on the cross, he took that destruction. He took the full wrath of God for sin. He took the punishment for those whom God chose to save. He died in our place. He sealed our pardon with his blood. But he didn't stay dead. Death could not hold him. The giver of life defeated death. He rose on the third day. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God. And because of this, those who believe in his sacrifice for sin have the wonderful promise of verse 10. Whether we are awake, whether we are alive, or whether we are asleep, we might live with him. Those who are alive in Christ will experience the fullness of salvation. We will live forever in a city that sin has not stained, as we just sang about, where God will wipe away every tear from our eyes, where there is no more death or mourning or tears or pain. Our eternal joy is that we will live with him.
We will live with God. Gazing forever with renewed sight in the face of our Savior. We will always be with the Lord. This is the gospel. And if you are not a Christian yet, this is how the story can end for you. Salvation in Christ instead of destruction. Eternal joy in Christ instead of endless anguish. Security and peace in Christ instead of being lost in darkness. Don't ignore the warning from God this morning. Don't you see the urgency? Step out of the darkness and turn to Christ in faith. Faith that what he offers is better than anything this world can offer. Faith that he is better. And we pray for you, as as we did this morning in our pre-service prayer, that God would grant you this saving faith to turn to Christ for your eternal joy. And for my beloved brothers and sisters, our application, how we apply this passage comes in verse 11. Look with me there. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. You know, I'm sure you, you picked up on my emphasis as I read the verse. The burden for comfort does not lie primarily on Paul, the pastor. It falls to the congregation. It falls to all of us. Each one of us. Oops. Oh, thank you, Joanne. <laughs> A helper fit for me. Each one of us is responsible for each other's spiritual development. We are to use the gifts of the Spirit to build one another up. That's the way God has designed the church, the way he's designed our church. And what a privilege we have to do this for one another. And the main way we do this, and this is, of course, it's nothing new, is to personally and intentionally apply the truths of the gospel to one another. You know, our fellow Christian, the person sitting beside you, is not a a project to finish, is, is not a problem to be solved. They are a person, a fellow image bearer who is being increasingly conformed to the image of Christ. And we each have been given a unique part to play in each other's lives. Milton Vincent, in his his gospel primary, says it much better than I can. Listen to what he says. I realize that the greatest gift I can give to my fellow Christians is the gospel itself. Indeed, I love my fellow Christians not simply because of the gospel, but I love them best when I'm loving them with the gospel. Imparting my life to them in this way I thereby contribute to the experience of the power, the spirit, and the full assurance of the gospel. And how often do we need to be assured of the gospel? 
So if you aren't already, place yourselves in relationships where this can happen regularly, where you can give the gift of the gospel to your fellow Christians. Come, come to our prayer meeting this Wednesday. You know, join our small groups when they start again in September. Even now, intentionally meet up with one or two other believers to regularly encourage them with the gospel. Gather with others to pray for progress in worldwide disciple-making, a reminder that the gospel we believe is for the nations. And even as I say this, I can say with Paul, do this just as you are already doing. I'm, I'm, so, I'm always so encouraged to see and to hear how this is happening in so many different contexts. And I've been personally encouraged by many of you who live out the gospel to me by your example, who speak the gospel to me, who pray the gospel over me. And I thank you for your love and your faithfulness to do so. So my beloved church family, let us keep encouraging and building up one another in our most holy faith. Let us continually, with joy, remind each other of the precious and powerful gospel. God has not destined us for wrath, but for salvation in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for saving us by your grace. We rejoice in the hope of our salvation in our Savior. We long, we long for you to bring us home. While we wait, we ask that you keep us faithful. Grow us in love for one another. Grow us in love for the lost. Grow us in holiness. We pray all of this in the name of King Jesus. Amen.